0: Okay, are we almost ready? Allons, les allons. Okay, I'm going to start. Now, I just remind you that next Thursday there's a strike of the university lecturers, so I won't be lecturing uh, next Thursday um, at the usual time. I'll put an extra day at the end of term, probably just the first Thursday after the official end of term, but we can talk about that uh, later. Okay, now, I was talking about the first of the two strands in Marx, the strand that's associated with... um, Alienation, And I was talking a little bit about the concept of alienation and about the way in which understanding Marx's usage of the concept of alienation presupposes understanding what alienation means in Hegel that Marx's use of alienation is slightly different. But although it's slightly different, it's still based in a way on Hegel's conception of alienation. And so I thought it would be a good idea to say a little bit about the general concept of alienation and then talk about the, the three particular areas in which Marx talks about alienation, um, religion, Politics and labor. And so I'll say a little bit more now today about what I started talking about the last time, namely the general concept of alienation as a general concept. And then I'll go through the use of Marx's use of the concept of alienation in these three particular contexts. And so you'll get, so the beginning discussion will be slightly abstract, but I hope you'll get a slightly better sense of it when I go through the detailed things. And now I said last time, the most important thing to understand about Marx is that he is not a Kantian. He's a Hegelian, if he's anything, he's not a Kantian. And by that I mean... He does not believe that binary divisions are utterly central and absolutely irrefragable and the things you must start with and the things you must end with. He does not, in general, think, in the way Kant does, that there is freedom or necessity. And the two are completely separate. There's morality and there's interest. There's the empirical and there's the Uh, non-empirical. He doesn't think that at the final level of analysis, that kind of binary distinction is the way to think about the world. So there's no such thing in Marx or in Hegel as absolute freedom or absolute necessity. The very idea that there could be such a thing as something that satisfied all the conditions of being free, doesn't make sense for him. And similarly, alienation isn't a concept that has a structure like a binary structure. It isn't that there's alienation and there's non-alienation, and the two of them are clearly distinguished. Alienation is a concept that's a gradual, a a concept of degree, and a concept that is connected to a particular context. So you can speak of things getting freer, even if you can't say that there's something which is absolutely free as opposed to absolutely determinate. Now, if you can't think this thought, you're never going to do anything with Marx. So Marx takes over from Hegel the idea that binary distinctions are perfectly good in everyday life. I can say that's an apple and that's not an apple in everyday life. But once you enter the realm of what Hegel calls philosophy, or Marx would talk about as speculative thought, those binary distinctions turn out to dissolve themselves. So you can say that something is an apple or not an apple, but the concepts that you're interested in, concepts like freedom, don't have that structure. Freedom is a question of talking about something being in a particular context Freer than something else, and Marx is vociferous in saying that you can speak of things being freer than in the context, or more alienated, or less alienated in a particular context. You can talk about that sensibly, although you cannot extract any kind of binary concept of freedom or uh, or, uh, or, or or alienation which which you can you can use. So so. Uh, Marx agrees with Hegel that if you want to understand human life and history, particularly human life and history in a longer, in a larger context, binary and binarily uh, d- uh, defined concepts are not going to give you anything. So you have to try to learn to think about about all concepts as fluid concepts that are defined relative to a particular context. In particular, defined relative to a particular historical context. So freedom doesn't mean something that you can give a set of necessary and sufficient conditions for so that you can look at all of history and say, is this free, is this not free? Freedom depends on what kind of society you're talking about. Are you talking about a feudal society? In a feudal society, there are these and these forms of freedom. There are these and these forms of unfreedom. And you can work with that. And that's, you're never going to be able to reduce them to a set of platonic uh, definitions. So that's the first thing to start with. And then, as I said, the schema that's behind, therefore, the use of alienation in Marx is uh, not a schema which begins by defining what alienation is, as it were, per se, in the way in which you define uh, what an apple is, say, per se, but it's something which talks about a three-part schema that you can use of which alienation is one part of the three-part schema, uh, and you can apply the whole schema of three parts in a number of different ways. Um, And so you can talk about alienation only in the context of this set of distinctions. So as I talked about, so as I said last time, think of this as roughly speaking a set of descriptions about human powers and how human powers exist and how human powers develop. Marx is all about human needs, human capacities, and human powers and how they develop. And that's the central thing. Hegel says, if you look at a first approximation at human powers and human capacities and human needs, you can see that there's a recurrent structure that you can observe, which is a structure in which you have a state in which the powers of people have a certain kind of immediacy, then a second stage in which that immediacy is replaced by a state of alienation, And then a third stage in which that alienation is overcome and the powers are, as Marx often says, reappropriated. So you can crudely use this scheme, immediacy, alienation, reappropriation. And again, this is not supposed to be something. This is an abstract scheme. You can't give, as it were, a formal definition of the individual components of that scheme. All you can do is observe that that scheme can be applied in a number of different ways. And so you, as it were, if you want to use this jargon you can say well you learn how to use it by watching it be applied you don't learn how to use it by having a platonic dialogue in which you get a definition of it so now no so this is a scheme in which you're inherently saying about something to, so to say about something that's alienated or a form of alienation is always then tacitly to be comparing it with another stage which you describe as a stage of immediacy and another possible stage which you describe as a, as a stage in which the uh, alienation is overcome. So the call it alienation is to locate it in a certain context in which you define a, a, a thing that's before and define a thing that's potentially after. And that context is the thing which gives the concept of alienation then some meaning. So the schema is not absolute and it's not foundational. So what counts as immediacy in one context can count as alienation in another context. And I talked about that the last time. So think about it this way. Kant says, look, anything in human life, I'm sorry, any event in the human world is an event which is an event which you will find has a cause. So given any thing that we experience in the world, we have to subject that to a certain kind of causal, a certain kind of analysis, which is an analysis that this is an event, and if it's an event, there will be a cause for it. We can always find a cause for any event. We know a priori that every event has a cause. Now Kant says, but from the fact that we know a priori, because it has something to do with the way in which our mind and our experience is structured, from the fact that every event has a cause, it doesn't follow, it precisely doesn't follow, that there is some thing which is a first cause of all things. So that, he thinks, is the basic mistake that religions make. So religions make the correct observation that if you find any event, you'll find a cause for that event. And they take that correct observation, which is an observation which is very good about the nature of human experience, and they draw from that an inappropriate conclusion. They draw the conclusion that because this thing has a, this event has a cause, and that event has a cause, and anything I find has a cause, everything has a cause, and to say that everything has a cause means there is one cause, God, which is the cause of everything. And that last step, uh, Kant says, is a mistake. So similarly, I can use this schema: immediacy, alienation, overcoming of alienation, and I can say the state that I've posited here as the state of immediacy relative to the state that I'm describing as a state of alienation, that too, in another context, can be not a state of immediacy, but a state of alienation. Just as I can say one event causes another, but that event that's the cause is, in another context, not a cause. It has a cause. So, so just as any I find a cause of an event, I can, I can construe that cause. So, so every event has a cause. But every cause is something which I can also construe as an event, which has another cause. And and Kant thinks, you can just continue this. And now you might say, but there has to be a stopping point. There has to be some, if, if it's the case that every event has a cause, there has to be a stopping point. And the stopping point has to be an absolute thing, which is the first cause of everything. And Kant says, that's a conceptual mistake. And that's exactly what Hegel and Marx say about alienation and immediacy. So given any state of affairs, you can try to analyze it in any number of ways in terms of category of immediacy, the category of alienation, the category of overcoming alienation. So you can can always use this schema, but it doesn't follow from that that you can find something which is the absolutely immediate and first thing. Just as every cause in a different context is an effect of another cause, so similarly, anything you might call immediate in one particular context can be seen in another context as uh, an instance of something that's not uh, immediate. So Hegel says notoriously, there's nothing under heaven and earth that's not at the same time immediate and mediated. Now, that's a slightly different terminology he's using there, not immediate, alienated, reappropriated. But it's the same thing. So these are analytical categories uh, that you have to use to understand the world. But Marx also thinks, of course, with Hegel, that at a certain level, if you say that something is an analytical category that you, can't have any, you don't have any choice but to use, the distinction between that and saying that it's real becomes uh, relatively pointless. Okay, so we've got this schema. Immediacy, alienation, reappropriation. And now I gave this example the last time, which I'd just like to talk about again, which is think about the history of language. Think about the history of the English language. We've got the English language in the 15th century, and in the 15th century, everybody's just talking with one another. That is, you talk in a particular way, I talk in a particular way, there are different dialects, there's a wide variety of different usages. And now you can analyze that by saying, look, that's a state in which people have a certain immediate power. You can speak, I can speak, other people can speak. Then, in the 18th century, people begin to make dictionaries of English, and they begin to make grammars of English, and the dictionaries and the grammars get established as a separate sphere, which is a sphere in which people have... make a certain attempt to systematize and purify and correct the language, and they write books and they have schools, etc. And now suddenly, uh, usages, which before the 18th century were just one of the things that people say, become categorized as proper or improper. Because the dictionary makers and the grammarians begin to say that's an improper usage. And they might have good reasons for that. They might have reasons depending on structural similarity of paradigms, etc. So they might have good reasons for that. So things that so, so the first stage is the stage of everyone just talking as if they as they normally talk. And there's a wide variety of dialects, etc. Then you have a stage in which you alienate in a way the power of speech and attribute that power of speech to a separate institution. In France, you have the academy. In Britain, you don't quite have an academy, but you have dictionary makers, you have people who write grammar books. They are distinct from the population as a whole, and they then define what's correct usage. So here I am, growing up in a certain village, and I'm speaking in a certain kind of way, and suddenly, I'm confronted, not just with other people who speak in a different way, but I'm confronted with people who have authority and power over me, namely schoolmasters who grade me and who use canons that are developed by dictionary makers and grammarians in London. And so suddenly, I find myself, Marx would say, I find myself confronted with a form of alienation. In the immediate position, that is, when I was just talking in my own local dialect, in the way you're talking, your dialect, I had a certain power which I was exercising. I was exercising it relatively unreflectively. Now suddenly, that power is in some sense taken away from me. Because now instead of just having the natural power of speaking, my speech is categorized as proper or improper, and I'm held to try to speak in a a way that is thought to be proper. So I see that institution, the whole institution of schools, grammar books, dictionaries, as something which is different from me. It's separate from me. It's institutionally separate from me. It has authority over me. I won't get uh, a job unless I'm I'm declared by these people to speak a proper kind of English, for example. So I, I see these things taken away from me. And now, then you could imagine a situation, however, he says, in which people at the end of a long process of schooling have assimilated the norms of proper speech so that when you come out of your schooling at the age of 20... You go into your schooling at the age of six. You speak your local dialect. You go through this process of alienation in which you're confronted with these external authorities who put demands on you and define what counts as meaning. But if if the process works, if it works, it doesn't always work, but if it works, at the end you come out speaking proper English. That is you, Marx would say, you have somehow reappropriated these powers which were alienated from you in the second step. So, so alienation means I've got a certain human power. That power is something that somehow belongs to me, and in belonging to me, it ought to be together with me somehow. I ought to be exercising it naturally. However, we observe in history that one of the ways in which these powers develop is not by simply allowing people to exercise the powers in any way they want, but by establishing specific institutions that have the property that those institutions are distinct from the people in question, and those institutions appropriate to themselves authority and power. Now, when I say they associate themselves to themselves authority and power, remember, There isn't any authority and power there that we don't give them. Right? The schoolmasters can't somehow come down from Mars and tell us, you must now speak in this way. Any power the schoolmaster has is, in some sense, a power that the society gives to him. It's the parishes that set up the schools. It's, it's, so it is, it's, it's all a situation in which human powers are being developed. But the way they're being developed is not simply by letting everyone speak as if they want to, But by establishing a separate structure in which particular human powers are taken away from the people who are immediately speaking, I no longer have the the power just to say, well, that's the way I speak. And so do me something. I don't have that power anymore. Suddenly, it's the case that I say it this way, but it's wrong. Someone else says that. Those powers are alienated social powers, Marx will say. And they're alienated by virtue of being distinct from the immediate powers that the people have and coming, as he says, it comes to be the case that something, therefore, which is in some sense a power of my own, the power of speech, the power of valid authoritative speech, confronts me as something alien, distinct from myself, and with power over me, the locus of meaning, he says, has shifted from me to this thing they tell me when I've made a meaningfully correct grammatical sentence rather than my saying that. That's the alienation. Then he says, if everything goes well, though, I come out at the end speaking proper English. And now it's important for him that this notion of speaking proper English at the end is supposed to be both a higher level of development of powers and a level of development of powers that is both higher and back in direct contact with me so the idea is by virtue of going through this process at the end I don't just get back to the situation I was in at the beginning at the end by virtue of mastering what's called proper English I can say all sorts of things I couldn't say at the beginning at the beginning, I have a vocabulary and a, a syntax that's perfectly adequate for my everyday needs, but, it, but if I'm a six-year-old person who grows up speaking a dialect in a village, I won't have the, the, the power of expressing myself with as much clarity, differentiation, etc., as other things. So each of these stages... Sorry, I've got to... <coughs> I'm sorry, my voice is very... Soft, I've I've now messed it up a bit. Just give me a second to get (coughs) around. So, each of these stages, he says, is a stage of increasing power. I start as the little boy in the village. I then go to school. Eventually, if I grow up, I can now describe the basic principles in quantum mechanics, I can perhaps speak French, I can speak Latin, I can do things that I didn't do. So the notion of alienation then is the notion, a notion that describes that middle section of the process, the section in which what are actually human powers, which have their immediate locus in people, are taken away from me They're alienated, I ought to see the power of speech as a basic part of myself, but I don't anymore see it. Now notice, this is not just a question, it's really important for Marx, this is not just a question of beliefs. This doesn't have anything to do with what the little boy thinks about it. That is, it has something to do with what the little boy thinks about it. What it really has to do is what's real. That is, the little boy may or may not think anything about that. But the fact is, if he doesn't pass the grammar exam, he's actually not going to get a job. And it's the reality of that situation of power, authority, uh, and meaning being located in a separate structure. It's the reality of that, which is alienation, whether the little boy takes to this or rejects it is a secondary thing. So, alienation is not a psychological category for Marx. It's never, a, well, it's not a psychological category. It's in the first instance what he calls an objective category. Now, of course, if you are in a situation in which these powers which ought to be basic powers that belong to you are alienated from you if you are in that situation it's very likely you won't be very happy but being alienated is not being happy or unhappy being unhappy is a relation is a is a reaction to the situation of being alienated that's why adorno in the 20th century says it's actually even worse for people in our society to be happy and not to think they're alienated because just imagine the little boy the little boy goes to the school and if he's happy in the school It means he hasn't really understood what's going on. He hasn't understood that there's someone else who has complete control over his life. And the natural human reaction to that ought to be that he's unhappy. So if you can make the workers really happy, that, so that's why Adorno says the point of art is to make people unhappy. Right? The point of art is to make us realize that we're not, we're living in a fool's paradise if we don't see that all the essential properties and powers and forms of meaning that ought to be under our immediate control or under our reappropriated control are actually out of our power. So that's the worst state to be in. Okay. So I hope that's somehow clear. That's, so that's the general structure. Now Marx applies this structure, as I said, in three places. To religion, to politics, and to uh, labor. And I'd like to begin by talking about religion because he gives a kind of good example of that. And his analysis of the discussion of religion is taken over from one of Hegel's uh, students, a man named Feuerbach, who says something like the following. Feuerbach says, think about religion. What's religion all about? Religion, Feuerbach says, doesn't arise in the way in which uh, uh, the Greeks and other people thought about religion. The Greeks thought about religion as arising from a state of wonder. You wondered at certain things. You, became, you, you looked at the universe. You saw the universe was marvelous. And you imagined there was a person who had produced this marvelous thing. Feuerbach says that's a completely wrong account of the origin of religion. Religion are, originates from failure and from the sense of failure and frustration. So Feuerbach says we, as human beings, really need to affirm ourselves. That's our basic human need. We, feel, we need to feel in control of our world, I need to affirm myself by seeing that I'm in control of my world, and I'm in control of my world means that I can get what I want, and I'm not subject to completely random ways of being uh, 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 deviated from what what I want. I have to have control of my world, I have to be able to exercise my powers, and I have to be able to see that in exercising my powers, I'm getting what I want. Now, he says, that's very nice, But in fact, especially in pre-industrial societies, people are confronted constantly with the experience of not being able to affirm themselves. So if you live in a really primitive society, It isn't the case that you'll go through life seeing that the powers that you have actually are powers that get you what you want. You'll rather see that you're frustrated or stymied or thwarted at all points. That is, you'll be very keenly made aware of the fact that your powers are limited, your control is limited, and you are failing. In affirming yourself. You want to chase the deer across the river and you can't get across the river because you can't swim. And so you have this experience of frustration. And now what Feuerbach says is, and religion arises out of an attempt at generating a compensatory fantasy which gives us an illusory way of believing that we are actually more in control of a situation than we actually are. So the central mechanism of of religion is the generation of an imaginary entity who has all those powers which we immediately experience ourselves not to have. So I come to the river. To affirm myself, I would have to be able to go across the river and chase the deer on the other side. I can't do that. So now, But now, but now Forbuck says, but my need to affirm myself is so strong that an imaginative satisfaction of that need is better than none. The best satisfaction of that need would be able to get across the river. But I can't do that. So, so a substitute is I imagine a god who was powerful enough to jump across the river. And this imaginary construct is a construct which doesn't actually satisfy my needs, but it gives me a kind of, as he says, compensatory satisfaction in the imagination. So, uh, So, you can see the concept of God as an alienation, in a way, of human powers. I have these powers. I have these powers. They have limits. My power to move is limited. And I can, I, and I can, but I can imagine uh, a less limited form of the exercise of those powers. Uh, that's what I really want. And every time I find myself frustrated, I try to calm myself down by attributing an ability, an increased ability and power of a kind that I'd like to have, to this entity uh, rather than to myself. So I can't get across the river, but my god, Zodo, uh, actually. Can jump across the river because he has big legs. He has big feet, and Zodo is much bigger than I am, and I can't do it. But I am a child of Zodo. Praise be Zodo, the great uh, river leaper. So this, this, um, Feuerbach says, is this. And so, so now, what happens? Feuerbach thinks is, but in the course of history, human powers don't say that stay the same. So in primitive societies, you can't get across the river. Not being able to get across the river, you attribute the ability to get across the river to to this imaginary entity. But what happens when you suddenly develop uh, the ability to swim, or you develop the ability to make boats? You increase your powers. And Feuerbach says, by virtue of increasing your real powers, you will see that you no longer need to attribute to Zodo the ability to jump across rivers. So this, he says, is a kind of instantiation of this structure of immediacy, alienation, and reappropriation. Immediacy means I've got the powers that I've got. There there they are. I experience them as being limited. I therefore alienate them. I imaginarily attribute them to this God. And then by imaginarily attributing it to to this God, he, he thinks, in some way this leads me in the direction of actually acquiring the powers that I've attributed to this god uh, and I want to become like the god so I develop the ability to swim across the river and at the end then I've reappropriated those powers and he says, and then you will find that the god Zodo no longer has the power to jump across rivers or that doesn't become important for him. So you can look at the history of theology, he says. Just as Marx says, the history of industry is the history of the development of human powers, so Feuerbach says the history of religion is a history of the things that people were frustrated about. And you can see, the, so the, the, the concept, the God, has the powers that people feel themselves to be frustrated about, but when they get the powers that were attributed to the God, really, That becomes unimportant. So Zodo, instead of becoming the god who jumps across the river, becomes the god of justice, of justice to the stranger. Uh, So the conceptions of gods, he says, become more and more ethereal as the original crude properties that were attributed to them no longer need to be, have this satisfaction. Now, that's why Marx, of course, said, and now Feuerbach thought that by the 19th century, we had actually satisfied all the needs that we had for the development of human powers, and so atheism was the the word of the day. Because you needed the god to to console you about not having powers. But when you do have powers, you don't need the god. And that's the situation we've come into. And that's Marx's starting point. His starting point, you remember, is the starting point of everything is absolute atheism. Now, it's really important to see that this is uh, 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 an instance of what Marx calls alienation in the sphere of religion religious thought is alienated because it attributes to the God these properties that are human properties that ought to be our properties. So now remember, so for Marx it's a complete waste of time to refute theological propositions. The the person who goes the person who, uh, who talks to a religious person and argues about the concept of God or the arguments for God has missed the point because the, because, as Marx says, once the need, the, the, these religious structures don't have their origin in an attempt cognitively to understand the world. That's not their origin. They're not ways of trying to make us understand the world, they have a completely different structure. Their structure is to give us consolation for needs, which otherwise would be unsatisfied. And so, as Marx says, as long as the need is not satisfied, you can refute the ideas all you want, all that will do is it will cause you to it will cause the people in question to generate some new crazy ideas, so you can refute the Christian idea of God, but then they 'll become witches will they 'll believe in superstition as long as the need is there the, the need is going to make itself satisfied one way or the other, so engaging in this in discussion with theologians is pointless because that's not what they're doing. Saying God exists is not a cognitive problem. Saying God exists is different from saying the hippopotamus exists. The hippopotamus exists means you go to some place and you can see there are these animals and they're called hippopotami, and they have these various properties. God exists doesn't have that structure at all. It has a different structure. It, it, the structure is I need reassurance. And you don't, you don't get rid of the need for reassurance by attacking the propositions that the uh, construct that you have uh, which gives you reassurance will have. So Marx says you'll only get rid of religion when the need from which religion arises and the need to which religion gives, a, gives, a, gives an answer, satisfaction, satisfaction when that, that need is satisfied in a more direct way. So the people don't need to have the God Zog have big feet when they're able to get across the river. And so it isn't that they refute, it isn't that you refute the ideology of the god Zog by saying he doesn't have big feet, he has big ears. You don't do that. It's just that nobody's interested anymore uh, because they don't need that compensatory fantasy. OK, so that's, uh, that's uh, what Marx thinks about that. Now, then he. So, therefore, religion, he thinks, is is a a kind of model for ideology in that it's both a complete illusion and it's enlightening in a way, historically. It's both a complete illusion in that it's a form of thinking or a form of mentation that has no cognitive relation to the world much. The statements in it aren't related to the world directly. So it's completely wrong. It's false. But but it's informative because it tells you something. What it tells you is not anything about the world. It tells you something about what needs people have that they can't do without, that they can't get satisfied in a direct way. So if you want to understand history, you have to understand religion. But understanding it means precisely not taking it seriously as a description of the world, but taking it seriously in this other way. Okay, so that's that 's what he talks about as the alienation in the sphere of religion, and in an instance in which we 've got these human and he says that so for the Christian, God is the center of meaning, and we human beings get our meaning from him that 's like the heliocentric system of uh, of the universe, God's in the center, he gives meaning, and we're surrounding him. What I'm doing now is I'm going to have a Copernican revolution. Instead of God being the center of meaning and human beings be little, being the little planets who are illuminated by him, we are the center of meaning. What meaning there is is a human creation. And one form of those human creations might be the creation of gods that go around. So this is, the, in a way, a model for uh, thinking about these things. Okay, now I want to say a little bit about alienation and of politics. Alienation history of politics depends, for Marx, on starting with a kind of Hegelian analysis of society. Hegel, as you know thought that it was absolutely important if you understood a society to see a society as subdivided into different spheres. Societies were not unitary, homogeneous entities. There wasn't, as it were, a single set of moral and legal and rights-based thought about them, obligations about them. There weren't, it wasn't a single unitary thing. There were three different spheres, and associated with those three different spheres, there were three different characteristic ways in which humans developed themselves, characteristic ways in which they interacted with other people, characteristic ways in which they developed obligations to one another, and therefore characteristic forms of moral attitude. Right? You remember, Hegel denies the Kantian idea that uh, rights never co- conflict. Right? Kant says, what is right can only ever be one thing. There can never be such a thing as a genuine conflicted right. If you think there's a conflict in right, one of the, one of, you've got one of them wrong. And for Hegel, it's absolutely essential to see that what there are in society as, is different kinds of right that arise. And they conflict all the time. There's, no, there's nothing just illusory about those rights. They conflict all the time. Now, the three spheres, you remember, in which Hegel thinks society is divided and Marx takes over this analysis to a large extent are what Hegel calls the family, what he calls civil society, and what he calls the state. So the term state is ambiguous. State means either the whole structure or it means one component of the structure. So state either means Prussia considered as a whole, or it means the family in Prussia, civil society in Prussia, the state in Prussia, meaning meaning the particular technical political apparatus. Now, first thing to be said is the term civil society does not mean what you might think it would mean. The term civil society changes its meaning in the 21st, in the 20th century, and comes to mean something very different from what it means for Marx. Right? Civil society, the term he uses in German is bürgerliche Gesellschaft. And bürgerliche Gesellschaft, b- bürgerlich, is a German term that's ambiguous, as Marx says, between two different terms. Burgerlich means both and a burger is bourgeois or burger can mean citoyen, right? So uh, so the German term burgerliche Gesellschaft is either the society of, of the bourgeoisie of burger in the sense of the bourgeoisie, or society of citizens, right? Citoyen. So société des, so burgerliche Gesellschaft means both Société des bourgeois and societe des citoyens. It's ambiguous between those two things. Now, what it does not mean, what it does not mean is what it came to mean in the late 20th century, which is civil society was used in Eastern Europe, as you know, to refer to informal structures that were at the interstices between the economy and the state apparatus. So in Poland, they talk about building up civil society. And civil society meant not part of the productive apparatus, not part of the state apparatus, but newspapers and informal groups. That was civil society. Now, for Marx, civil society is, roughly speaking, the economy, right? So it's not something that's distinct from the economy proper and distinct from the state apparatus proper. It is, he calls it, the system of needs. And to call it the system of needs, the emphasis on system of needs is not on system of needs, but it's on system of needs. That is... If, let's, let's start. We, with the family, Marx says, is a structural of part of society in which people encounter one another, as you might say, given the other terminology, immediately. That is, you encounter other people as the individuals they are without responding to them according to universal principles. Right? So suppose I have a tea shop and now I might give you a cup of tea and not charge you for it because you're you. And if my sister comes in, I might give her a cup of tea just because she's my sister. I don't use a universal law in operating toward her. The family is supposed to be the area in life or in society in which people relate to one another as non-regulated, non as entities not subject to universal principles. I don't use a rule or a principle in dealing with members of the family. The the relations between members of the family are relations that are based, he says, on immediate feelings of some kind. You love the person, you like the person, you like them for what they are. You don't even have to say why you like them. It's a low level of immediate recognition and engagement with the person. So note the family is not a biological category here. It's a social, it's a social category. So, so so Mark, Hegel and Mark say those are the family. And the family is this sphere in which people encounter one another as particular individuals, they respond to one another as particular individuals without yet universe without yet subjecting those people to uh, any forms of universal demands uh, or regulation. It's an unregulated sphere in which people simply interact with one another uh, in an appropriate way. Now, for various reasons, that's not enough for human beings. We also need to develop our capacities in ways that go beyond the ways in which we can develop our capacities simply by interacting with the people we meet. And the system of needs, or the civil society, Marx uses the term civil society to refer to all those spheres of human life where, in contrast to the family, I don't treat you just because you're you. I treat you according to a universal principle. So if I have the shop that sells tea and you come in, I have a universal principle. Every customer gets his cup of tea for 10p. Every customer gets this much tea. I have rules. I have principles. That isn't the way people act toward one another if they're acting in what Hegel thinks of as a familial context. Remember, too, all of these distinctions between familial, civil society, and the state are not sharp distinctions. Right? To do that would be to fall back into the Kantian view. So, so these are these are, as it were, ideal. Types used for analytical purposes. So, in the sphere of civil, uh, civil society, the, the nature, the, the sphere of needs, I'm developing my needs. I'm developing my capacities in exchange with other people. Where two things are true: one is, I am construed as a self-interested um, economic agent. I am construed as homo economicus. I'm running the tea shop. Not because I like my friends. I'm running the tea shop because I have a self-interested desire in maximizing something from this. So I'm a, in, in the family, Hegel thinks, I'm not exclusively a, self, a self-interested individual. I occasionally do things in the family just because I like the people. The, the very notion of doing something because I like it or you like it gets lost because the family is this kind of unity of interest. But when I open the tea shop, that changes. When I open the tea shop and I run the tea shop, I am suddenly an individual in a way in which I was not an individual in the family. I'm a self-interested individual. I'm homo economicus. and I'm, That's the first thing. And the second thing is I'm treating you when you come in as an anonymous other homo economicus and I'm treating you according to universal laws. So so Marx, so Hegel, and Marx says this is the sphere in which the Kantian philosophy applies. Right? the Kantian philosophy treat everybody as an individual, treat everybody universally, use universal principles. Don't Kant's famous example, right? A child can go and buy meat from the butcher just as well as anyone else because the butcher gives a unified price for everyone. Right. So that's the Kantian model of what uh, what 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 uh, ethics is about treating everyone equally according to these rules. Hegel points out that doesn't work in the family. And as you know, one of Hegel's early a lot of his early work was about the family and about Christianity as structures that don't fit into the Kantian model. So, he's very keen about the fact that this Kantian model of treating people as individuals subject to universal laws won't work as a final analysis of things. It works for one particular sphere, for the sphere of the economy. Okay. So we've got the economy which is in which these people are in, encounter one another not as concrete individuals but as abstract instances of homo economicus, and they try to regulate their thing according to universal laws. Now, Hegel thinks uh, that this system is inherently unstable.? Right? One of the real things that distinguishes Marx and Hegel from. Modern ways of thinking about this is they all think that economies economies like this will not be self-regulating. It won't be the case, as a lot of neoliberals think, that if you take self-interested individuals, you take universal principles, you take fair principles of exchange, They don't think that that system will be able to maintain itself. It will regulate itself. It will be stable. It can be the final framework which will allow society to work. Rather, now, Hegel has complicated reasons for thinking that won't work. Marx has slightly different reasons for thinking that work won't work. I'm not going to go into Hegel's reasons, because then we'd never get further. Uh, it used to be it was very difficult to make this point to people. But I mean, since 2007, 2008, I don't think we have to make the point, uh, once again, that economies are not self, these kinds of laissez-faire economies are not self, automatically self-regulated. But this is something that Hegel is deeply, deeply committed to. An economy that has this form, in which the structure is basically a structure of autonomous individuals who are self-interested, interacting with one another according to universal principles, that structure will generate such extreme differences in wealth and, uh, and um, honor, he calls it, that it will be unstable. So what, what Hegel thinks is, a fair economies necessarily produce what he calls the rabble. And now the rabble is not just the poor, but it's people who are both poor and dishonored. So all of these structures for Hegel have a number of different dimensions. The, The system of needs, the economy has these rules, which are rules about independence, rules about people interacting with one another, etc. The moral side of that is that you have respect by virtue of being able to be an economic entity who's capable of maintaining himself or herself in existence. So the moral side of of civil society is if every person is an economic agent, You're an honorable or respected member of that society only if you really are an economic agent. Your honor depends on your ability to maintain yourself in this kind of system and be a success. Therefore, And so what Hegel says is, therefore, if you have extremes of difference in wealth, and the only way to deal with these extreme differences in wealth is by redistributing means to those who are poor, that won't work. Because even if you make the poor less poor, you will have morally uh, devalued them if the society is one that takes as its central value the value of people being able to succeed in the economic struggle independently. So this is a system in which your value as a human being and your, and your honor, as he says, your worth, your sense of self-esteem depends on not being a recipient of welfare being an independent person gets through. So if that's the case, he says, and you can show that a society like this, if left to its own devices, will generate infinite numbers of people who are both poor and dishonored, then that system is never, never going to work. It's going to destroy itself. So what do you need? Well, what you need is you need an external power who can intervene in civil society and prevents civil society from destroying itself. And now that's the state. Or, to be more exact, for Hegel, the state has two faces. For Marx, the state has only one face. For Hegel, the state has a face that looks down and a face that looks up. So the face that looks down from, for, 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 for Hegel is the, the, the state... Is a an institutional structure with things like militias, policemen, administrative courts, etc. Those are institutions which are alienations of human power. There's no, the policeman has no power except the power we give him in some way. Nevertheless, that power is lo, is, is, is is detached from the people who are the origin of that power, that is, the people in the community. And it's located in the people in the police institute. Uh, So you've got this, this, this state, which is a structure which is external to civil society. And now what Hegel says is the function of that state is to intervene coercively in civil society so as to prevent civil society from Uh, 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 destroying itself. And it can do that in a a number of ways. For example, it can regulate commerce. So it might be the case that civil society is not self-regulating. That is, it isn't the case that if you let everybody be indefinitely selfish and just require them to follow universal laws, it might be that that is a recipe for disaster. But of course, if you have an external agent who, who intervenes, that agent can Institute coercive taxes. Uh, institute codes of trade, which are not co- which are codes of trade put in from the outside. So the state is an external object of coer- external subject of coercion. The point of which one point of which is to intervene in, in in economic in the economic life and civil society, so as to restrict it and prevent it from destroying itself. Now. So therefore, for Hegel, and for a lot of people after him, including Marx, and also including, of course, Max Weber, the idea that the state can be democratic is just an illusion, right? Because to say that the state is fully democratic, the point of the state is to be outside civil society, because it's got to intervene in that. But if the state isn't completely separate and outside, it won't be able to intervene in ways that are, that are necessary. And particularly, if it's completely under democratic control, what that will mean is that, in fact, civil society will have control over it. So from, for Hegel and Marx, the idea that the economy or economic powers have control over the state is the worst possible situation. Because what it means is their natural tendency to destruct themselves, destroy themselves will not be counteracted by anything outside themselves that's intervening so if the if, if the big corporations take control of the state or they have influence on the state then they'll, you'll lose the point of the state the point of the state is precisely not to be under the either the democratic control of the majority or the uh, economic control of the large corporations that's its whole point a rationale so so as just as and as you know the, you know, as you, I mean I don't want to insult you but as you know, I mean historically the very concept of the state is a reactionary invention it's an invention to get away from notions of popular sovereignty if you read the stories about the invention of the concept of the state in the 16th, 17th century, the point of the state is not to be democratic, it's supposed to be a separate structure of authority and power which can intervene, so the idea that you can make this thing which was invented not to be democratic, democratic democratic is just i mean that 's just that 's just not going any Hegel thinks that 's not going anywhere and, uh, and of course Max Weber thinks that that 's not going anywhere I'll, I'll, you know, both Hegel and Marx and Max Weber think that 's not going anywhere that 's just to, you know, to try to think you can have a Democrat. you can have democracies, but you can only have democracies if you don 't have states, so the Greeks could have democracies because they had a a series of small societies which were uh, directly uh, self-organizing. So small societies like that can be democratic, but they can't (coughs) be states. And big societies can be states, but they can't be democracies. And in a way, way, therefore, from the point of view of Hegel and Marx, the whole history of the 20th century is a history of trying to square a circle. It's, I mean, the, the, the theoretical history is a history of an attempt to say that this thing which is not a democracy is supposed to be a democracy. And now, people can do that sort of thing for from, from long periods of time. As you know, in the West... For all of the Middle Ages, people kept saying God was one and God was three. He was both one and he was three. He was one and he was three. So you know the fact that it's a gross contradiction won't prevent people from spending a lot of time trying to to do it. Um, but that's what it is. Okay. So that's the one side of the state, the downward-looking side of it. It's an external force of coercion with human power, pa- in which to which we've alienated human powers. And in alienating those human powers, we put them in a certain structure which intervenes from the outside to keep the the economy going. Now, Hegel thinks, there's another side to the state, which is, is where the upward-looking side of the state. But I'll talk about that and about why Marx disagrees with that the next time. Because uh, I'm afraid the time is up. But the next time is not next Thursday, remember. Uh, the next time is the Thursday after that. And then I'll continue on with that. Because the, there's a strike next Thursday. I have some papers for you. Thank you.